You know, as scientists, we're not really an excitable people. You get your pocket protector in a bunch, Josh. <laughs> I guess so. Where's my holy hand grenade? Yeah. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, well, it's certainly an interesting time to be a scientist. Let's talk about it. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 66. Come get your kicks on episode 66. That is not how that song goes. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Greetings, Dan. Hello, Josh. Did you survive the Super Bowl extravaganza? Am I allowed to say that or is that copyrighted? Uh, I think what you meant to say is the big, game, the big game extravaganza. TM. Yeah, actually, I, that was something I learned this year was that the Super Bowl is trademarked and businesses technically cannot advertise Super Bowl parties because that's a trademark term. Technically, you're not supposed to watch the Super Bowl because it's trademarked. <laughs> well, we, we had a big game get together last night, uh, and that was probably that was probably the most engaged I've ever seen you in a sporting event. Well, can I say why? I think you can say why. Yeah hypothetically I, I wouldn't say this happened but if there were to be some kind of game of chance uh, associated with the game i might be more interested because i do love a good probability with a with a monetary um yeah take winning it, condition. It, it wouldn't make any difference whether there's a monetary <laughs> winning condition but if there is a probability based game that is not just me sitting and watching people throw a ball back and forth i'm definitely more into it Yep, enjoyed the big game. Uh, speaking of big game, Dan, I'm actually surprised that we're drinking more beer tonight, <laughs> given the amount of beer we consumed last night. Yeah, we took it pretty easy, I thought. Yeah, I thought I it did. wasn't too bad. There's all those kids running around. But we're having a beer tonight, Dan, and had this one in the fridge and realized we needed to get this one in the rotation sooner rather than later because this is a winter-themed beer. Yeah, we're hitting 70 degrees this week, so what do you have for us? Yeah, so we have Bell's winter white ale and we've had bells before you probably remember we had the two-hearted always the two-hearted yeah uh, really popular one from bells uh, bells is in comstock michigan this is their winter white ale a belgian inspired wheat ale it definitely tastes belgian i i'm enjoying it um i was trying to to pick out the um what kind of flavor profile you were trying to sneak in whether it had anything extra well I'm, I'm curious if you taste anything extra, Dan, because in the marketing speak, they actually claim that there's a mix of clove and fruity aromas without the use of any spices. So I don't know if you're... All those aldehydes again. If you're picking up on any cloves. I don't know. No. Yeah, I don't think so. But it's still a good beer. Pretty solid. Uh, if you like a Belgian style. Winter cold. Winter cold. So that's perfect. Yeah, I think if you're tired of the heavy stouts or porters uh, for winter beers, this is a good good change of pace. So... All right, Dan, let's get right into some science in the news. All right, science in the news. There was a lot to choose from this week, Dan. There's been a lot of big scientific advancements. I thought about going with the pig heart story. You've probably heard about the pig hearts. Yeah, pretty crazy, exciting and crazy. Yeah, super crazy, but I'm not talking about that. 
Okay. It might be one of the flavors I was tasting in this beer. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> pig heart? Pig uh, human hybrid And flavor? that's actually without the use of any additional spices. Nope, uh, just a couple of stem cells <laughs> dropped into each bottle. Uh, well, I thought we could talk about instead, Dan, um, an even more important study for, for us humans, and that is uh, the study about killer mice. Do I need to be afraid? <laughs> I haven't heard about this. Maybe, Dan. So... Did you ever see Monty Python and the Holy Grail? I'm sure you did. <laughs> Only a thousand times, Josh. <laughs> well, you probably remember As that. I push my broken glasses up <laughs> the ridge of my nose. and Well, you, I'm sure then you know by heart uh, the scene with the, the killer bunny. Yeah. Neither shalt thou count to the seven. Yeah. Yeah. Before launching the Let's holy... Let's just do the whole sketch right we here. Should, we should. Uh, the holy hand grenade of Antioch. Yep. You probably recall that. Well, this is similar, Dan. Maybe this will provide some insight into the... Killer Bunny. But basically, what happened, Dan, this is from a study that was published a couple weeks ago in the journal Cell. One heard of, of that one, One yep. of the uh, single-word journals. And this study was called Integrated Control of Predatory Hunting by the Central Nucleus of the Amygdala. Subtitle, I soiled my armor, I was so scared. <laughs> Subtitle, How to Turn Lab Mice into Killer Machines. Okay, how do they do it? Yeah, so, what do you mean by killer machines? Well, so what they did, and I actually thought this was pretty cool, the first line of the summary in the actual cell paper was, superior predatory skills led to the evolutionary triumph of jawed vertebrates. Hey, I'm a jawed vertebrate. That's right. So this study provides some insight into how we obtained our evolutionary triumph, uh, and it was actually our superior predatory skills. So, uh, us and sharks. Sharks are vertebrates, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, they are. Right. Uh, so, anyway, what these researchers from Yale actually wanted to do was try to understand some of the circuitry in our brain that actually leads to predatory behavior. And so, some of these things that, um, some of the ways that these processes work in mice might actually provide some insight into human predatory behavior that was important throughout evolution. Okay, now I'm getting more scared. Go ahead. Well, just wait. So what they did, Dan, was they actually utilized um, a really cool technique called optogenetics. Have you heard of optogenetics? Opti-I or light? Uh-huh. No. Genetics? Yep. Genetics. That's it. That's, it. That's okay. exactly it. So, so what optogenetics uh, enables you to do, Dan, is basically you can, using genetic techniques, either viruses or, or transgenic techniques in mice, you can put these light-sensitive proteins in different cells, and in a lot of cases, in actual uh, use of this in the lab and in this paper, into different neurons. And so what you can do then is you can excite the brain and specific regions of the brain with light or with lasers, and you can actually cause neurons in a very specific way to turn on and turn off at will as you turn the light on and off. Like it'll actually recover after the light turns off? Mm -hmm. That's right. And it's actually uh, very sensitive. So you can really, it's like flipping a switch. And this is not the kind of laser that just burns a hole through the mouse? Uh, I've assumed. Just a nice, cool Like light. a nice light. Yeah, yeah a nice right. light. Um, so anyway. <laughs> a nice light that turns them into killers. <laughs> uh, so, so what they did, Dad, was they actually transfected one of these light-sensitive proteins into the central nucleus of the amygdala. All right. And so they found they could stimulate two neurons in the amygdala using optogenetics. And these are a couple of neurons that they thought could be involved in the muscle function of your jaws and different things like that. Um, but what they found was that when they placed a non edible item in the cage 
and they activated this laser, it caused otherwise indifferent mice to immediately assume a capture-like body posture and would seize the object, hold it in its teeth, attempting to kill the inanimate object until they deactivated the laser and then the mouse immediately would let it go and was disinterested again. Okay, so you turn on the laser, uh-huh. it, it attacks whatever you put there. Yeah. You turn off laser and it's like, oh, yep. what, what was I just doing? Yep, that's, actu- that's exactly right. And uh, they actually found that they could replace this inanimate object with a cricket. Oh, wow. And you can imagine, uh, same thing. Same carnage, thing pure carnage. Well, and I'm even more excited to tell you, Dan, that there's movies. Oh, no. You can't do this to me again. Yeah, I, I still haven't gotten the moth running around in a robot shell out of my brain yet. All right, Dan, I want to show you. We'll, we'll post links. You got to check these movies out. All right, so I want to I start off, Dan. Let's look at the uh, inanimate object. So there's a stick in a cage. So we got a mouse. There's a wood stick. And he's got like a little cable going to yeah, his head. You can head. see the laser is kind of attached to its head. Yeah. So it's Fiber walking around the cage. Probably. And there's this stick. He doesn't seem to care about the stick. It says laser off. Okay. Oh. No. Laser on. Oh, wow. He he took it out. Nailed it. Nailed Stick it. didn't stand a chance. <laughs> it didn't. But he doesn't look angry. He looks very uh, peaceful while he's yeah, well, attacking okay. it. Yeah, no, you're totally right, Dan. Well, let's let's uh, scroll on down movie S6 where we introduce the live cricket. So let's see what that looks like. I'm calling PETA. All right, here we go. Let's see this. All right, so laser off. Cricket's hanging out. Everybody's getting along. That mouse doesn't seem that interested in the cricket at all. Okay, you're going to fire the laser on. Oh, wow. Yeah. They are not friends anymore. Yeah, that's a little more intense. And uh, according to the paper, Dan, the, the cricket did not survive this trial. No. <laughs> so so anyway, there there you have it, Dan. I, for one, welcome our new cricket mouse pig human overlords. Yeah. Well, something I thought was interesting was uh, besides the fact that I guess there's an inherent coolness to being able to instantly um, turn a switch and have a mouse become a killing machine. That wasn't the primary thing the authors were, were after. You don't say? Um, but even besides, you know, kind of understanding how human predatory behavior evolved, one thing I thought was cool is I was reading a little bit about um, some of the speculation for how this could be important to humans. And one of the authors was was talking about how potentially these, these regions might control hunting in humans. But as you know, Dan, we don't, most of us hunt for our food in current day. Except in aisle six of the grocery store. (laughs) Well, that's true. Uh, But perhaps some of our opportunistic feeding behaviors like overeating could possibly be controlled by the same brain region. So you could... Okay, so there could be some applications that are not death and murder. Yeah, absolutely. And actually also in the paper, uh, I'm pretty sure the the authors found there were were different ways chemically they could disrupt this this firing, this behavior uh, by the laser. You should be really pleased that you didn't work on this uh, research when you were in grad school because you know for a fact I'd be standing at the window with a laser pointer while you're <laughs> changing the mice in their cages. You're like covered in mice that leap out of their cages. <laughs> that would be, uh, I'd, where's my holy hand grenade? <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd take a video and run. All right. All right, Dan, that's, uh, that's our science in the news for, for this week. Thank you for, again, fueling my nightmares. <laughs> All right, Dan, shifting gears, it has been an eventful couple of weeks to be a scientist around here. I said, stop fueling my nightmares. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Uh, what were you going to talk Speaking about? Speaking of things yeah. that uh, elicit rage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been a busy couple of weeks uh, for those of you. Actually, you know what? Even if you're not in the United States, I'm imagining you probably heard we have a new, a new president. That's right. And there have been, been a few tangible changes in the science community since... Um, 
since the new president took office. And so I just thought really quick I could run through just a list of things off the top of my head that I could come up with uh, that have happened in the last couple of weeks. We'll, we'll do our disclaimer. We're going to try really hard not to share our own political views and biases, but we do want to talk about the impact of the administration on science because I think that's um, what our, our listeners are tuning in for is to understand how decisions being made by the president and the president's staff are going to affect research. Yeah, and we would be remiss to pretend like nothing is going on in the science community. La, la, la. You have another beer, Josh? <laughs> Certainly, these are conversations that I think are going on uh, with students and postdocs around the country. So here's a few things, Dan. First of all, pretty much immediately after the new administration uh, took office was all mentions of climate change were removed from the White House webpage and also from... Um, also from the web pages of other government entities like the EPA, which had some extensive resources and communications about climate change. I'm not familiar with that phrase. Climate change? Could you explain more about it? Oh, you, the listeners can't see it, but I was doing air quotes when, okay. I, when I said that. Well, uh, since it's not mentioned on any major websites, I assume <laughs> it doesn't exist. Uh, related to that, a gag order was placed on EPA scientists, and so, um, and, and presumably uh, scientists from other other governmental divisions too. But uh, these scientists were not allowed to respond to any press inquiries or use any social media accounts. All posts that were related to climate change were removed. And actually, Dan, the EPA has not posted to Twitter since uh, the new president took office. Yeah, so a uh, little bit of citizen journalism here, but friend of a friend works at the EPA and and just reports that morale is very low. And this friend of a friend was afraid to even talk about it because um, he feared losing his job. So, you know, that this is not an official report. This is this is secondhand and thirdhand, but it's I think we'll get more leaks and more reports out. It, it's a really... Um, hard time to be an EPA scientist. Yeah, and, and actually, Dan, I don't know if you saw this. This was, I think, just in the last couple of days. February 3rd, um, a bill was brought to Congress, and the bill is called to terminate the Environmental Protection Agency. Now, terminate, that means something <laughs> other than what it sounds like? Yeah, this was, uh, I'm reading this right off the congress.gov website. You're looking right at it, Dan. Yeah. So, I mean, this is real stuff that, that's happening right here. And yeah, it's not a great time to be an EPA. You sure it's not like to screen Terminator 2 <laughs> at the EPA as kind of a morale booster? Yeah, you're the word guy with Terminator. <laughs> yeah, Terminator, that's a good, good movie. Yeah, so not a great great time to be an uh, EPA scientist. But Dan, as you probably saw, all of these rogue social media accounts have popped up for many of these government agencies, including the EPA and very famously, probably most famously, the National Park Service and also NASA. And even NIH has its own alt. Yeah, it has Twitter been account. observed by um, people better and more in touch than we are that the more you try to clamp down on speech inside these organizations, the more you will get leaks. And I think that's what we're seeing. Absolutely. Some of them, I'm sure, are fake, but um, a, a handful of them are, are likely real. And um, even the ones that are not going out on Twitter and leaking are, are talking to reporters. Yeah, that's true, Dan. And you know, the gag order, that certainly, and the shutting down the, the Twitter account, that got a lot of press. I guess one thing that's happened that maybe had a more drastic, immediate impact on actual research that was ongoing is the EPA was immediately required to suspend all of their grants and contracts, and all scientific work being done at EPA now has to be reviewed by political appointees in the executive branch. So basically, this is saying whatever money you were spending, whatever 
grants are available or contracts are out there to do this work has been suspended and everything has to be funneled through the the office of the president. So my levity is quickly draining, Josh. <laughs> and I think Dan, these are some specific things that have happened, but kind of more broadly is just this general war on facts and the coining of this term by the administration of alternate facts. That kind of got the goat of, of scientists, not just in the government, but but throughout the world. It's tough. It's tough to swallow that one. Um, uh, I, it, you know, I think you've probably watched the interview where that that phrase was uttered, and it was a complete and unwavering barricade against saying anything against the kind of um, expected message. And so, when you cannot go back on any statement you made, even if it's been updated, even if you have new data, then your only alternative is to double down, double down, double down, and you come to a place where uh, you have to say, what's real isn't real, because now we've got nowhere left to go. Yeah, and it's so funny to imagine what if someone was doing that in the science community. I mean, they would, <laughs> I mean, their career would be tanked so quickly. I mean, the credibility would just be gone. Yeah, you wouldn't get past Journal Club, right? No, that, that's absolutely true. But I don't even think this is acceptable politically. I mean, I think it has been widely um, criticized and panned because even for a political class where we expect a little bit of doublespeak, um, it, was a, it was a bold statement that we no longer have to worry about what's true and what isn't true. What's true is what we say is true. Don't bother trying to verify it. Yeah, Dan. So I mean, even a tweet from, from earlier today from the president any negative polls are fake news. So no matter what. Yeah, so if the result, I mean, basically what that says, if the result is something that disagrees with what I think, it's fake. So, Josh. Yeah, this wouldn't really help me in grad school. Live? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Dan, this was kind of just running through some things that have been going on. So I thought what we could talk a little bit about is how the science community is reacting to this. And I got to say, Dan, I have been in science for a while now. I mean, I've been in science for about 15 years, and I have never seen anything like this as far as scientists getting, <laughs> I don't know, getting worked up, jacked up, enraged, I guess. Uh, you know, as scientists, we're not really an excitable people. You get your pocket protector in a bunch, Josh. <laughs> I guess so. Um, but one of the things, Dan, that has kind of organically happened in response to all of this is the science march, uh, the March for Science that now actually has a date, um, April 22nd, 2017, Earth Day in Washington, D.C., and now sister marches all across the country are being planned as well. Pending the Earth still existing on that date. That's true. That's an asterisk. I just wanted to put that in there. <laughs> in there. And, you know, I just think it's so interesting because I don't think it ever would have occurred to me that large groups of scientists would have organized together to go out in public and be this vocal about anything. Yeah, it's like reading about a pack of sloths attacking <laughs> somebody, right? I mean, you know, I get other uh, activist groups getting out there. I totally get it. But I don't think I ever would have thought anything would happen. No, I agree. I am, and I don't know if you're like this, I am uncomfortable with strong opinions mm -hmm. because I, I always assume that there's another piece of data that might change my mind. I'm really uncomfortable with the notion of political parties where in advance I have to say, I agree with everything that this whole group of people say, mm -hmm. you know, it just, it makes me really uncomfortable. But I think, I think what we're seeing is a group of people who feel uncomfortable with this type of a strong show of emotion or this strong um, <clears throat> position are saying, 
if we if we are rejecting the idea that um, we can use our eyes to observe something and describe it and all agree that that is the the reality that we're experiencing if we if we're rejecting that idea then you know we have nothing left to do yeah i mean it really i mean it really cuts at the core of who we are and what <laughs> what we hold dear you know we can we can debate policy we can debate reactions to things but the idea of we are going to set a course and make decisions off of anything other than evidence and facts is really too hard, too much to bear. Saying that the thing that I saw, I didn't see because that couldn't jive with the reality you're trying to create. That's, that's where we stop. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Dan, there's that, but then also with what's going on directly with the EPA and other government scientists where everything you study has to come through us before you can report it. Like basically this control, if we don't like the results or if we don't like the question, then we're not even going to allow you to to look into it. Yeah, historically, we would have called that a conflict of interest, right? If your funding is coming from the Sugar Council, we are going to discount the, your findings on the health effects of sugar. Um, if your findings have been filtered through a government bureaucrat who has a, a political bent, I'm... I have to believe that those results are not unbiased. Yeah, and it's worth noting that some of this has happened before. I mean, in the last several years, the CDC has been essentially prohibited from studying the effects of gun violence. It's actually illegal for the CDC right, yep. to study to example. even study that, um, regardless of how you feel about gun control. Never happened, doesn't happen. Don't worry about it. And, Move on, Josh. And close to home, Dan, in North Carolina, this was in the last couple of years, uh, there were some you know, some coastal uh, geologists who studied sea level rise and had some data that showed that the ocean levels were rising a certain amount. And by a certain year, it's likely that parts of the coast might actually be underwater. And what that did was that impacted some development projects that were um, right along the coast. And so in response, the state legislature decided to make it illegal to consider scientific findings of coastal geologists yeah, I think they called that the la la la. I can't hear you. La 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 rule. Yeah, I think even Stephen Colbert uh, riffed on that a little bit. I'll bet. Yeah, <laughs> uh, totally unbelievable, but it happened, and and it seems like more things like that will happen. So, what's going on with the march? Yeah, so I actually sat down, Dan, just briefly with um, a graduate student who actually is involved with the planning of one of these sister marches in our town, the, the Raleigh, North Carolina March. And I just was curious to know, um, you know, as a graduate student, what motivated her to get involved in this type of thing? Cool. So I'm, I'm Lior Vered. I'm a graduate student at uh, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, uh, fifth year in this chemistry department. And um, I'm studying uh, signaling networks in cells. My main motivation is, so first of all, I'm, I'm a woman of color, which I think is connected to my motivation. and. Um, I see this rift happening between the scientific community and a lot of people in the American public that um, feel like scientists kind of live in their ivory tower and are not necessarily very connected to what's happening um, in the U.S. And I think that part of um, the recent attacks that we've seen on science through the gag orders and the loss of funding uh, with the new administration um, are connected to that rift or, or are exploiting that rift in order to pass this this new policy. Um, so I, 
got involved with the Science March really to start a dialogue about the relationship between the scientific community and the American public, uh, and particularly marginalized groups, people of color, um, and the working class, how these groups are affected, but also just providing services like healthcare is connected to science. And I don't think that there's enough talk about what a strong relationship there is between the scientific community and, and the public, generally speaking. So that's the main message that I wanted to put forth. Scientists are public servants. We, we're literally being paid by tax money and that we're working in order to create a better country and, and to serve the American public as a whole. Yeah, really good. Um, I think it's a useful perspective. It's from from a graduate student's perspective, here's how this feels. And and the words she's using is is like attack based. It's it's a it's a violence being done to scientists and to scientific thought. And the victims, it sounds like, are in in her mind, it's the public. Yeah, I think I think that's critical, Dan. And and that's really who loses. Right. I mean, you know, we have focused a lot, even in the way we've been talking about it as scientists, as oh, well, it sucks for us as scientists not able to do our work. But really, if you step back from it, I mean, the people who really suffer are the citizens of our country, Dan, because, I mean, really, why do we study anything? We study, especially when we're talking about public health or human health, um, we're trying to understand the climate. We're trying to understand disease so that we can make decisions or interventions that are actually going to benefit the public. And so if we're ignoring evidence on these topics, then what are we making decisions? What is guiding our decisions? You know, we're ignoring things that are actually happening, um, but it's the public who really loses because if we put all the scientific findings out there, we can have a debate about what we do with regard to those findings. And the public, they can look at it. And this is also, this kind of goes into things we've talked about about paywalls and, you know, having better access, the public having better access directly to scientific findings. But if the public can't even see the results. Or they can only see the results that are approved. Yeah, that are filtered, right, right. It's almost worse. It is worse. And so, yeah, I think that's an important angle for scientists not to lose sight of is certainly we can think about how this impacts us directly in our work, but also making sure the dialogue is about this is how these types of policies impact the public negatively. Yeah, I don't think we need to enumerate the the benefits of science on society. We've all survived diseases because of antibiotics and we've gotten, um, you know, you've got an iPhone in your pocket because of science. That's true. Um, but it's really easy to lose sight of the impacts of basic research on some of those discoveries and, uh, it's really easy to throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's this piece of science I don't like. Therefore, all science is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Dan, I wanted to actually um, present a counterpoint. When we think, I think all scientists, or the vast majority of scientists, are united in the fact that this shift in policies from the executive branch are a big issue for for not just scientists but for the public. But there was a pretty high profile opinion piece in the New York Times last week entitled, A Scientist's March is a Bad Idea. Uh-oh. And I have to admit, when I read the title, it kind of got, got my hackles up just a little bit. Just, just because it was, it was too aggressive, saying uh, you shouldn't do this because you're... Yeah, I mean, you know how it is, Dan. Anytime anyone's passionate about anything, 
there's like Somebody a cycle along, to it, yeah. right? There's the the wave of passion, yeah. then the cynics come behind the them. Bank blanket brigade. <laughs> That's right. Um, but I have to admit, Dan, this was a really thoughtful article by a scientist who actually is a professor of coastal geology um, and director of program for the study of developed shorelines. He's actually a scientist that was really involved in what we were just talking about a few minutes ago. Um, he's a North Carolina scientist involved in some of those studies that were completely shut down by the state legislature um, of North Carolina a couple so, of years ago. So he's had experience with the political side of science and been burned, it sounds like. Yeah, directly. And so some of the points that he made that I thought were at least worth acknowledging, he had this fear that scientists as a group, there's already a certain amount of skepticism by people with certain political leanings and by the public, maybe fueled by certain politicians a certain skepticism towards scientists. And so what a march potentially could do is certainly on the heels of the pointedly political women's march, a scientist march could reinforce this narrative that scientists are an overly political group and maybe overly politicize science and data and research in a way that could have negative impacts. So instead of being uh, the unbiased observers of nature that we consider ourselves by, by taking a stand, by marching, we are... Um, taking sides politically, and therefore any kind of research we do might be seen as biased. Yeah, so instead of basically building bridges with the public um, to at least a certain segment of the public, a march could actually drive a, a larger wedge. Again, it, you know, another thing he drew from was his experience butting up against government that was actually against the type of work he was doing. And so, you know, one point that he had was that most of the people who were attacking him, especially most of the governmental people who were against what he was doing, had never met him or any of his co-authors. And also, most of the public had never met anyone they considered a scientist, and they didn't really understand the painstaking scientific process that led to these peer-reviewed conclusions. These weren't scientific research papers are not opinion pieces, right? And the general public doesn't understand the links to which um, the scientific process is undertaken to actually ever get to a published piece of research. And so one point of view he had was was in people he's spoken to in the South who are skeptical of science. One thing that would always come up is many conservatives would actually name drop Al Gore when they talk about climate change. And, you know, thinking about the Inconvenient Truth documentary that Al Gore did, you know, one thing that did was that actually led a lot of conservatives to initially see climate change as a partisan political issue because of where the message originally came from. If Al Gore likes it, we don't like it. Exactly. And so um, there's some fear, I think, um, that he has that the same thing could happen to science more broadly because if it comes across as this is against a Republican legislature, then, oh, scientists are, this is just like a liberal thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it, we're against that. It's a real risk. The, some of the, the words you're using have me concerned, though. The, you talked about the skepticism about science. You talk about people who don't know any scientists. And that is leading to this rift between the scientific community and everybody else. And I've, I've been thinking about this a lot this week. We have a, a difference in our society um, when people are illiterate um, we do everything we can to, to teach them to read. And, and there's a stigma associated with it. If you couldn't read, you would feel bad about it. Um, you know, there's a concept of enumeracy, people who can't understand math or, or do math. 
Um, I don't know what the the lack of training is in science, the lack of the ability to think through a problem in a scientific way. I don't know if it's irrationality or illogicality or or what the word is. And and I like words. If I could figure out what that word is that that lines up with illiteracy, what I would prefer to see is every human being reaching some level of proficiency. So it's not that PhDs are scientists. It's that we all have this basic level of scientific literacy so that it doesn't feel like them against me. And I think I think when it when it becomes that us against them mentality, then I hold on to my ignorance and uh, I cherish it and I hold it up and say, look how strong I am in defying you in your ivory towers. Um, it's just really corrosive and, and really damaging. Yeah. One thing I thought about as you were saying that, Dan, is it seems like an, a key difference, I don't know where this comes from, between um, literacy and, and scientific or between illiteracy and scientific illiteracy is you're right. There's not a, there doesn't seem to be a skepticism of literacy. No. Yeah. Nobody says, I'm so glad I can't read you eggheads. Yeah. I mean, I think for the most part, we generally agree that literacy is a good thing. Literacy is a skill that helps you live your life in an effective way and to contribute to society and to, you know, interact with people. It's, it's all positive. Yeah. But there's this skepticism about, even even scientific knowledge at all, the skepticism about scientists and the, their motives. And I really think, Dan, we keep coming back to this, but more and more I'm thinking that really the lack of understanding is a lack of understanding, not of scientific findings, but of the scientific process, right? And I think I think that's what um, Dr. Young, who wrote this this editorial, was getting at too, is the public is presented all right, scientists think that there's climate change and it's caused by human activity. And so when they internalize that, they think, okay, well, scientists are saying that. But what they don't understand, what they don't know is how scientists came to that point. And whether they can check the facts themselves or even have a basic understanding of it. The prideful ignorance is kind of what gets to me about this. It's not saying, well, that seems really hard. I'm going to I'm going to poke around and try to understand the basics of it to see if I can ask the next question, the next question, the next question. It's saying, those people said it, I disagree with it, and I'm glad that I don't know, I'm not going to learn any more about it. Yeah, and I think, Dan, this is where, this is where I think we all, we all come together in agreement as scientists. So, so where Dr. Young ends his editorial is really in a similar place as the motivation that Lior, the grad student we spoke with, was at, and sort of where we're landing. And, and this was what, what he said in the editorial. He said, I suggest that my fellow scientists march into local civic groups, churches, schools, county fairs, and privately in the offices of elected officials, make contact with the part of America that doesn't know any scientists, put a face on the debate, help them understand what we do and how we do it. Give them your email, or better yet, your phone number. The solution here is not mass spectacle, but an increased effort to communicate directly with those who do not understand the degree to which the changing climate is already affecting their lives. We need storytellers, not marchers. But I think really what this is getting at, march or no march, is whatever we do, we have to do a better job of not just communicating facts and figures and findings, but communicating the process and understanding who we are and what we do. Yeah, there, there's a way of unwrapping our research saying, you know, we thought this was happening. So we, we decided to try and test that. Here's how we did it. And I think people can follow that train of thought. I mean, maybe they wouldn't be able to come up with it on their own individually. 
but you know, the hypothesis-driven uh, research is it makes a great story. We thought this, we tried this out to test it. Turns out we were wrong. I mean, that's that's a that's a great way to communicate what you do. I guess Dan, any any sort of final thoughts um, with where you fall on all this? Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm still I'm personally uncomfortable with um, being part of a march. I'm the cynic in me says, you know, the, the administration may notice it, it may not exact a, a change immediately. But, you know, as I, as I was thinking over this, I think what's really important, if people do march, if scientists do go up to Washington or in their local community and get together, what they will see is that they are not alone in their, their feelings, their strong feelings, their values, their desire for a rational discourse in our political process. And, it's, it's what comes out of that. It's seeing that I'm not the only one who feels this way. Um, maybe I'll meet a few people who want to continue this in another way. And that's where the change happens. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true, Dan. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this this week and in the last couple of weeks and going back and forth. I feel like if there's anything this is teaching us as scientists in, this, in the scientific community, you know, I think our natural tendency has been and is to keep our nose to the bench to communicate and be insular. And, you know, you know, it's true, Dan, even the way we communicate our findings to one another, it's like every little field, every little lab has these foreign languages. And the way, even the way we talk about science to each other is completely inaccessible, not just to the public, but sometimes to the department one floor down or even the lab two doors over, right? And we all have this technical language that we use. And that's even transcends into the way we write our papers. I mean, there's a certain amount of technical language that has to be used. But let's say my mom could access scientific papers I've written. Does that mean she can access and read and understand them and why they're important? I don't know. Maybe not. So I think the way we've been communicating is clearly not working. And inarguably, all the things that have been happening in the last two weeks have certainly struck a nerve in scientists in a way that I have never seen before. Um, I think it, the the Facebook group for the Scientist March went from like five people to tens of thousands of people in a matter of 24 hours. So clearly things that have happening have excited and lit a fire under scientists in a way that has not happened before. And so I think we have to fuel that. I think we can't ignore that, that fact. This is not a contrived thing. It's almost like scientists are compelled. We have to do this. We have to let this out. And I think that's a good thing. But, you know, I don't really think the answer is a march or engage the public. I think it's got to be both of those. And I think the march could provide an opportunity for the public to actually see scientists in all of our normalness and diversity and kind of come out of the shadows of our lab and of our ivory towers and, and kind of show the world that we're not just a bunch of geeky Einstein party poopers, uh, but we're actually just regular people who are working hard to make the world a better place. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Please let us know what you think. Uh, you can write to us, podcast at hellophd.com. Find us on Twitter at hellophd. Tell us, are you in favor of a march or some other process? Is this all going to blow over in a few days and we're making too much out of it? Uh, we'd love to hear your opinions. We can share them on the show. Yeah. And I want to say also too, if you're a scientist out there who this is just really stressing you out for one way or, or another, or if you're being directly 
impacted by some of the things going on, we would love to hear about it and and share your story with our listening audience. And certainly, we understand the sensitivity of some of the things going on, and we would um, certainly keep your identity in confidence. Yeah, we'd love to be the leak source. Hello, PhD leaks. Yeah. That's right. I'll, I'll go register that right now. All right, Dan. Etymology, what do you have for me? Uh, this one turned out to be way more prescient than I assumed. <laughs> uh, the clue last week was, this mental illness is marked by the frenzied fear that one is going mad. And I'm I'm just going to guarantee that this one has not crossed your desk before. I think I have whatever this is. Okay. <laughs> well, the answer was lysophobia. And it is, you know, phobia, fear. And lysso uh, comes from the... Remember we talked about rabies last week? I do. Rabies is a Lyssa virus. And Lyssa in Greek mythology was the spirit. It was kind of this embodied spirit. I don't know if it was exactly a goddess of madness, rage, and rabies. So uh, Lyssophobia means fear of going mad. Fear of getting rabies is a form of Lyssophobia, also called hydrophobophobia. So, yeah. so what if I have the fear of the fear of getting rabies. Okay. Let's, do you have another hour? We'll just go through all the possible permutations. <laughs> the fear of the fear of the fear. Yeah. yeah. Lissa comes from the Greek. In Rome, you know, of course, they adopted all the Greek gods, but they named them different things. And in Rome, the deities that, that embodied this rage and madness were Ira. So that's where you get ire and irate. Uh, Furor, where you get fury. And rabies, where we get rabies. Pretty awesome. There was a god named rabies? Yep. God of madness. Huh. So I probably should have known that. Don't get rabies. Not a classics guy. All right. Are you ready for next week's clue? I'm ready. You can extract this rare metallic element from a heavy stone to make electronics and catalysts. Read it one more time. You can extract this rare metallic element from a heavy stone to make electronics and catalysts. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. And once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. And I will randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right, Dan. Thanks for that. And thanks for coming by and doing another show. If you would like to reach out to us, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd, or you can reach us on our Facebook page. We love to hear from you. Excellent, Josh. And thank you for the winter ale. That we're drinking. Yeah, we needed to drink it now. Uh, I'll be at you with the spring ale. Is it spring? Spring's almost carrot flavored. What's the spring food? Radish, (laughs) dandelion greens. We had that one time. Yeah, time to plant those uh, spring crops. All right, Dan. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Josh. There is. Where? There. What behind the rabbit? It is the rabbit. You silly sod! What? You got us all worked up! Well, that's no ordinary rabbit! That's the most foul, cruel and bad-tempered rodent you ever set eyes on! You tit! I saw my arm and I was so scared! Look, that rabbit's got a vicious streak a mile wide! It's a killer! Get stuck! It'll do you a treat, mate! Oh, yeah? Manky Scots git! I'm warning you! What's he do? Nibble your bum? He's got huge, sharp... He can leap about. Look at the bones. Go on, boys. Chop his head off. Right, silly little beater. One rabbit, two coming right up. Look. Ah! Jesus Christ. I warned you.